I'm Mark Spiegler, and this is Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. As a young Black girl growing up in Chicago, Pamela Joyner's passion was ballet. She even toured as a ballerina before embarking on a very successful career in finance. Today, she lives in San Francisco with her husband, Alfred Drufrida, and the two collect art voraciously. As you'll hear, Pamela's a rigorous thinker and remarkably focused on the long game. Whether it comes to personal collecting or to sitting on museum boards, she has strong ideas about what it means and what it takes to make a real difference. In the course of this episode, we talk about creating unique impact, the art that arose from the African diaspora, and why Silicon Valley is not collecting art, at least not yet. Later in the episode, we introduce a new short feature format to Intersections. For the first one, our correspondent Stephanie Bailey interviews the artist Wu Tsang, whose tribute to trans writer and musician Beverly Glenn Copeland, entitled Anthem, currently fills the entire atrium of New York's Guggenheim Museum. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, forward it to your friends and follow and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It's a pleasure and a privilege for us to have Pamela Joyner on this show. Pamela is one of those people who I always feel like I have to really be on my game when I talk to because she's always so sharp. But she's also, like me, a Chicagoan. This is one of the things that we bonded on many years ago that when we met. And I want to sort of start at the beginning in your journey through the art world. I assume, like me, that you were someone who was dragged at first and then gladly went to the Art Institute as a child. And I'm curious, first of all, is that right? And secondly, are there particular works that stick in your mind from your first experiences with art? So I don't remember a time in life where I did not frequent the Art Institute. And so I really credit that experience that was formulated and curated by my parents, informing my whole worldview around culture. I really loved the Impressionist paintings. That Seurat painting seemed huge when I was six. And it seems huge when I'm an age I don't discuss. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I did not go dragging and kicking. It's just been a part of my life. Yeah. You went on after a brief hiatus with ballet to a double Ivy League career, first at Dartmouth and then at Harvard and into business. And you started collecting roughly around the age of 30. What was the thing that pushed you into collecting and eventually into patronage? Well, talking to curators, uh, particularly Lowry Sims, who made it clear that there were stories that needed to be told by collectors that were other than the visible garden variety collectors. And that actually harkens back to my experience as a kid in Chicago, where I'd go see these fabulous paintings. But my particular narrative as a young kid of color was not easily found on those walls. She has spent a lifetime telling those stories. You came out of finance and out of private equity. I'm curious, when you started dealing with art, not as someone who merely went to look at artworks, but someone who actually was acquiring them or looking to acquire them, what was your experience with the art world, with the art market? How did you find it as an economy? How did you find it as an environment for a young woman of color? Mine was an experience and a process of learning. And that's not so unusual. When you enter a new realm of experience or industry, you have to learn the rules of the game. And you learn by trial and error. So back then, there were not lots of galleries that worked with the artists who I was interested in. So I primarily got to know 
small, local, private, Black-owned galleries. The environment changed dramatically over time. But I would say that I'm really surprised at the analogies that I find between collecting art and maintaining a career in finance. Both environments are very relationship-oriented. They're reliant on individuals having confidence in each other's integrity. So the more you develop your network and also the sense that you're a person that it's comfortable to do business with, that expands the realm of your opportunities. Did you feel like it was harder for you to be taken seriously by galleries, for example, because you were a woman of color? Or were you able to walk in with the confidence that comes with being a young, successful finance person? People have asked me over the years how comfortable I've been in various environments, including the art world. The way I would answer that question is I would say mine is a perpetually uncomfortable existence. I have always found myself in my adult life, whether I was one of a handful of people of color working on big investment banking firms in 1980, or whether later it was me walking into elite art galleries. It's not comfortable, but I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable. How am I going to navigate this? And so one, you figure out the rules, and two, you figure out if it's worth playing by them. And so because I think culture is worthwhile, it's defining, it's determinative of one's humanity, I gave some thought and some effort to trying to understand the environment so that I could get comfortable with it. So now I'm pretty comfortable with it. It's interesting. You trained as a business person. And yet, unlike so many people who come from finance into the art world, You're someone who's rigorously denounced the notion of seeing art as a financial investment. And yet, you're also someone who treats the act of collecting, the the process of patronage in a very structured way, including five-year plans and execution targets and key performance (laughs) indicators. It's kind of fascinating that you took one part of the finance mindset, but not the other. Yeah, because I am personally that yin and that yang. That's just who I am and how I'm stitched together. But I don't see those two approaches as oppositional. It's the structure that allows me to get to the place where I can see the unpredictable, sort of unleashed artistic aspect of the whole process. It's not formulaic. The art of collecting art is, in fact, an art. So one of the reasons I don't pay attention so much to the financial paradigms is because my definition of effectiveness has to do with whether I am successfully prosecuting my mission to help artists of the African diaspora gain and maintain visibility. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. The 20s will be a defining decade for women's wealth. Over the next four years, their wealth will grow faster than ever before. Female art collectors spent more on art on average than men last year. And women also collect slightly more works by female artists. How will the market respond? For more insights, visit ubs.com slash collecting. 
And now back to the show. The return on investment you're talking about is not how much money am I getting back from the money I invested in these artists in their artworks, but rather how much impact am I having with the time and the money that I'm investing in this particular effort, this particular artist? That's exactly right. And so from the time I was in business school, it was clear to me that one of my objectives was to try to make an impact, not just in business, but in the world to make it a better place. And so in a lot of ways, my business activities have been a means to accomplish that end. And art for me is my chosen vehicle. When you analyze the impact of your collecting, what are the metrics you measure that you track? The thing I'm the most interested in is works on view. And my good friend, Denise Gardner, who is so thrilling to watch assume the chairmanship of the Art Institute of Chicago, I borrow that phrase from her, but my perspective on this is that I'm interested in seeing artists highlighted by institutions through acquisitions and through exhibitions. I'd rather see one great masterpiece Mm -hmm. in dialogue with other great masterpieces in significant institutions that make taste and change the canon than a lot of paraphernalia that doesn't have any singular impact. Is there a particular case you can think of that sort of epitomizes what success looks like? I sit on a lot of museum boards these days, and I think there are a lot of cases. One of my favorite is a monumentally large Jack Witten work at the Museum of Modern Art that's been in dialogue with lots of different other works since that work was acquired. I love the troika of works at the SFMOMA that were recently acquired and put in the context of the Fisher Collection, one by Alma Thomas, one by Sam Gilliam, and one by Norman Lewis. I love the shows by young global artists of color that the Art Institute has sponsored recently. So I applaud the progress that these various institutions are making. And I think my job as a fiduciary of all three of these places is to ask questions about how they can do more in the future. One of the things that struck me is that you had such a rigorously different view of what it means to sit on a board than what most people think sitting on a board is about. Because people typically think of museum boards as being populated by people who have essentially done a personal version of the stadium naming rights thing. And that's not at all how you roll. No, I want to understand what my job description is. What is my value add? How can I measure if I have accomplished not only what the environment expects me to accomplish, but what I myself expect in terms of seeing results? I try to adhere to a really high standard, which is not only just to be useful, but to be uniquely impactful. A lot of people can sit in boardrooms and you can get duplication of effort. So I try to find a way to do things that others cannot or will not do. So just with respect to facilitating works on view, sometimes the artists that 
I like to champion don't have other champions. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I think our, our mutual friend, David Ajay, always says, only do what only you can do. That is really an eloquent way to put it. And I agree with that. People who don't know you well think of you as a Black collector supporting Black artists, but it's more complex than that, right? It is. Walk me through <laughs> it. <laughs> I do collect a variety of things, but since we really started collecting, I have had a preference and an interest and a love of abstraction. And part of what's attractive to me about abstraction, going back to the early generations of Black American artists who we collect, is that there was this notion in the 1940s at the time when the narrative was really being formulated around the roots of modernism and abstraction. There was this notion that Black makers could not legitimately engage in abstract practices. So as just a contrarian human being, I was interested in Black folks doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing. I fell in love with that particular aesthetic and those particular artists. So we kind of start from what it is you love to look at. And then that evolved into this mission of facilitating works on view, not in isolation, but in the full context of the full art historical canon. And many of these early makers were overlooked because of this obstacle that I described, which is race. But I also suggest and argue that race is a very bad lens through which to view art. When people say Black women collecting Black art, I think this other observation is really important. Because if I had unlimited resources, what I would be doing is collecting the artists that I collect and putting them in their full and natural global context with other artists. That wasn't done. That's why I encourage a dialogue with institutions that facilitates the correction of that history. I was thinking about the moment we're living, which is a moment where we're seeing a lot of museums and galleries and collectors trying to make up for overlooking people in the past due to a strong degree of structural racism, overt or covert. How do you see that period? And secondly, what's different now? In the 60s, and this is not just pertaining to the art world, as this country and its various institutions, cultural and other, grappled with the issue of race, inequity, racial separation, and racial division. People were very focused on intent, proving that they were good people who really did not intend to create ill consequence for a specific group of people based on an arbitrary criteria. What is different and what is markedly different in the last year and a half is that I think people are much more focused now on outcomes and results. And to a certain extent on measuring those outcomes and results. And that one's a a little bit of a double-edged sword too, but that's, that's my view. And so my view and hope is that where we are now is a lot more sustainable. You see galleries, as you mentioned, committed to varying degrees and some in a great deal of depth to these careers in every aspect of what's required to promote careers. You see museums not just interested in doing shows, 
but making significant acquisitions. And then you also see museums hiring scholars of either traditional backgrounds or more inclusive backgrounds to work with artists' careers and on shows to etch those narratives into the scholarship necessary to create the canon. And then you see, from a collector's point of view, a much broader base of collectors, not just collectors of color, not just highly specialized collectors, but global collectors buying a variety of these artists and putting them into dialogue with whatever scope their collections are involved with. I just think that those are much more robust models of long-term sustainability. You spoke about this double-edged sword of this focus on outcomes. So why don't you walk me and our listeners through it, the upsides and the downsides and how they relate to each other. It's not that representation is not important. It is. But I would argue that the caliber of the representation is the leading consideration. And then what you do with those objects or those talents. It's not enough to have Black curators addressing Black narratives. So the environment needs to be able to accommodate that. I don't like this idea of curating exclusively to one's identity. Because if that were the formula, just think of the weird distortion that would create. In the last year, one of the few markets where things were really surging was that for young Black artists. I'm curious how you think about that moment for the artists who you've supported or the type of artists you've supported. And obviously, it's a great moment in some ways because it allows them to support their practices and to get teaching positions and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, that moment when the spotlight shines on an artist or on a group of artists is in some ways the moment of greatest opportunity, but also of greatest peril. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think the history of the art world is exactly that for whatever group happens to be in the spotlight at the moment. I think the onus is on the artists themselves to exercise an agency whereby they become great stewards of their own careers and brands, for lack of a better way to describe it. Mm -hmm. The collectors, I think, have a moral obligation to be a little bit protective. I feel that moral obligation. The institutions are pretty astute, and they have been there, done that before. But the good news is that if you have a large group of people who really haven't had their moment in the sun, the best ones will survive and thrive over the long term. That's just the nature of the art world, I think. What we try to do is we try to pick artists that are really interested in the long game because we want to help people permanently enter the canon. And that's a decades-long process. Mm -hmm. Was there a collector or were there a couple of collectors whose lead you followed or did you make it up by yourself? It was a learning process. But one of the people I admire the most is Patty Cisneros. Tell me why. She found an important and overlooked narrative She's collected the work, she's sponsored the scholarship, and ultimately she's gifted the work to a major institution that creates a platform for these artists to be seen in the way they should have been seen 40, 50 years ago, forever. 
That's kind of the business we're in. We aspire to do that. And now I imagine given how visible you are and how clear you are in your thinking about collecting that a lot of people see you as an archetype or see you as a mentor even. Do you find yourself counseling younger collectors? I assume there are a fair number of conversations that you're a part of in which you are the elder stateswoman, not calling you old, but you know, that just by virtue, Watch it. <laughs> by, by virtue of your experience. Yes. But what I really enjoy, actually, there's a young collector who I will not name, who was at my home over the weekend. And I really admire him. He's my child's age and he's very studied and he's very serious and he's very diligent. And then this white hot, red hot, frenzied buying environment, he actually takes his time. He does the looking. He does the thinking. He's playing a long, long, long game. So we have these little get-togethers. And every time I have one of those conversations, I learn something from him. So, you know, I have to take my little notebook and write down the names of who he's looking at and what he's doing. I would be deceiving myself if I said to myself, I have the freshest eyes for looking at 25-year-old artists. Sometimes I'm okay at that, but usually I'm not. I need the 25-year-olds to help me understand what it is they see. Do you find that there are groups of artists where you're not as confident buying their work just because you're not coming from the same context that they are? I don't have to come from exactly the same context. I don't have to come from the same generation. I don't have to come from the same racial background. But you can't know everything. Mm -hmm. Right now, for instance, I'm looking at artists in Latin America, and I have to learn that environment. I have to learn more about Brazil. And that's what I enjoy about collecting. There's always something new to learn. This has to do with the fact that your focus is not on Black American artists, but rather on artists of Africa and the African diaspora, which of course did not only go to North America, but also went to South America. Exactly. And so the core of the collection early on is American. But when you think of the notion that Brazil has the largest number of Black people outside of Nigeria, it just makes conceptual sense that you should go in there and understand if the stories reflect other stories you're telling. And my discovery is they do. And so I'm constructing a way to tell that story that dialogues with what else is in the collection. And how does it feel to engage with literally another continent of work? There's more overlap than you think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one artist who we've delved into in some depth in the last year is a fellow by the name of Emmanuel Araujo. He is Brazilian. The first person who told me about him was Mel Edwards because they've been friends for decades. That work dialogues directly with the Mel Edwards work we have in the collection, along with the Richard Hunt work we have in the collection. People were segregated, isolated, disenfranchised, and from an artist's point of view, overlooked. And they were not doing that in isolation in this case that I'm describing. They were doing it in dialogue with people on other continents who were having the same experience. One day I'll step back and ask myself, why is that? Why is this a global phenomenon? I don't know the answer to that yet, but I just know that there's clearly 
interrelated global strands. So yeah, it's an interesting journey. You were heavily involved, if I'm not mistaken, with Soul of the Nation, the show at the Tate a few years ago. And that was focused very much on the Black American context. But of course, it was shown at a museum, which is in London, which has its own very specific racial issues, which are similar and yet not identical to the American. I think that that question is a natural outgrowth of the circumstances around creating the particular narrative around Sullivanation and other similar narratives. One theory you could come away with is every culture has their other, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's easier to see clearly, more objectively, someone else's other. Always. Right? I can't say that at the time I had that understanding, but maybe in hindsight, that's part of what we all experienced. Some countries, some cultures have done a better job of making culture accessible to those without money. And I'm curious how you think we can do a better job of that, of not making culture an elite consumer product. I have to start to answer that question by asking you to remember your experience as a young person in Chicago. Those museums are world-class museums, and they were free then. And so for me, that was life-defining. So we must do a much better job of making a truly told culture completely accessible. Board members all around this country, I'd love to see all of us commit to doing what we can to making that reality. We're self-limiting as a society to the extent that we don't make possible culture and make culture accessible to every American kid. I've had this discussion with gallerists at our various fairs who get upset when we have hundreds of school kids coming in to see art. We give them good conditions to see it, free tickets, et cetera, et cetera. And my argument is always some of these children may become the artists of the future, but also some of these children may become the CEOs of the future. Absolutely. And when they're deciding what their company should support, the fact that they saw contemporary art at such a young age has an impact. And likewise, some of those children may become politicians. And when they're faced with the question of whether or not to support the arts, the fact that they imprinted on it really early has a really significant impact. So it's not just a broader utopian view, but I think it's in the interest of the arts to put itself in front of everybody early on. I agree with that. And I would hold myself forth as a poster child for all of that. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you're one too. (laughs) Sure. I'm happy to be a poster child for early exposure to the arts. Yeah. As a San Franciscan, you have, I would say, arguably the most important gallery for historical Black artists with Jenkins Johnson in San Francisco. But you also have, interestingly enough, several galleries who've been opened in New York recently by women of color who've been around in the art world for a while. Specifically, I'm thinking of Nicola Fassell and Ebony Haynes. And I'm curious why you think it's happening now and what impact you think it will have. I applaud that it's happening now. But there's a parallel thing that's happening now, too, is so, again, I think there's an analogy to the 60s and 70s. There were a number of independent Black galleries that opened during the earlier era, 
So you had that movement happening at a time of awakening back then. You have that same momentum at a time of awakening now. And then you also have other long-established galleries now hiring more diverse senior professionals. And I think all of that's good, and all of that points to a higher level of sustainability than may have been true in the past, because different people have different predilections. So it's great that you have people doing a variety of things and representing a variety of artists in some cases. So I think that's all good. Something else that has to happen, though, is that collectors and museums, myself included, have to be more proactive about interacting with the rosters that are organized by those galleries. You've talked a lot about mission-driven collecting. Do you think, as someone who's dealing with younger collectors like the man you spoke about before, do you see a pendulum swing or do you see a fundamental shift in terms of how younger people with money are thinking about what impact they want that money to have? The young affluent want to make a difference. They want to have impact that is measurable in society. Now, cultural institutions and participants in cultural life don't necessarily naturally think of themselves in that way. In the case of Northern California, these young people have made their fortunes disrupting entrenched structures in society. If we want to attract that generation to be endorsers of cultural narratives and cultural institutions. We have to meet them where they are, and where they are is they want to make a difference. It means that if you're running an institution and you want the support of that next generation, you have to be ready to get disrupted. I think it's fair to say that Silicon Valley represents the greatest concentration of wealth generation in the history of the world. And yet, it is not an area where a lot of people are collecting art. Why is that? Because the art ecosystem and other cultural institutions have not figured out how to communicate with that group of people. It's not that they're inherently uncharitable. It's not that they're not culturally conversant. It's that the art world has yet to communicate the urgency that inspires those people to participate. My sense is that a lot of people making money in Silicon Valley feel like actually their company itself is a contribution to society and therefore they shouldn't feel guilty about the money and therefore they have no need to whitewash it. That's exactly how many people see it. Mm -hmm. You know, now as these companies grow and mature, some of them seem to get painted with the brush of the unpleasant. And so I think people are much more open. Yeah. People have been really creative. And some organizations have already gone through sort of gut-wrenching change. Yes. So I'm really optimistic. That is the perfect environment for collaboration with the Silicon Valley whiz bangs. That's exactly the environments they step into and move forward. Pamela, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much. And now, our correspondent Stephanie Bailey interviews the artist Wu Tsang. Hello, I'm Stephanie Bailey, Curator of Conversations at Art Basel in Hong Kong, and it's an honor to introduce this conversation with artist, filmmaker, and performer Wu Tsang, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient and Fellow of United States Artists, 
whose work includes a series of collaborations with poet and theorist Fred Moten. We will introduce Anthem on view at the Guggenheim in New York to September 6. Anthem is a film portrait of the legendary singer, composer, and transgender activist Beverly Glenn Copeland, which has been projected onto an 84-foot curtain hanging from the oculus of the Guggenheim's iconic rotunda. We talk about the work and its themes, and in the process, we touch on Wu's recent documentary, Into a Space of Love. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So you've just opened Anthem in New York. Could you introduce the work? Anthem is a film portrait of the legendary singer Beverly Glenn Copeland. And it's really a collaboration with him and also with the curator Axu Noel, who had invited me to present a film in the Rotunda space. I had that feeling when I was in the space about how church-like it felt. But then I also thought, what is it a church for? And I think the short answer was, this is kind of like a church of modernism. To embrace the church-like qualities, we have to also acknowledge the history of the building and what the sort of aims of the architecture were. So that was a complex set of problems doing in my head. I was also listening to Beverly Glenn's music a lot during COVID. It comes from a very deep interior place within him that he also calls not within him at all. For the purposes of this work and this moment, there's felt something really right about Glenn inhabiting and filling that space. He talks about receiving messages from the universe and that his role as an artist or a musician is to really receive those messages and transmit them back. That combination of things felt really appropriate for the space of the rotunda. Also a secondary background conversation to the work was collaboration. My partner, Tosh Basco, worked as the movement director and also as a producer. I also work with Uzma Maruf and her partner, Daniel, and a musician, Kelsey Liu. And there's also a lot of duetting happening between Glenn and Liu, who are also dear friends. It really was, for me, a call and response between two musicians of different generations. There's many layers of collaboration in the piece. Could you talk a little bit about the screen as well? The projection is actually onto a, a massive 85-foot tall curtain that's sheer. It's totally three-dimensional. So the image is continuously changing. Curtains are always these objects of transformation that turn spaces into stages. How have you come to interpret or understand this idea of love mm. through the work that you've done in Anthem? Yeah, love is a word and a concept that's always tricky, I think. And in art discourse, we have very clunky relationships. It's something like love because it sounds romantic or like, somehow simplified. The way Glenn and Elizabeth talk about love is similar to their sort of philosophy about making art. There's actually a second channel in the installation in the High Gallery that is a 40-minute conversation with him and his partner, Elizabeth Glenn Copeland. And the conversation is about love. It's about their relationship. It's not about the individual intention, but it's more about being receptive and being open to the possibility of connection with others. And that does not have to be fixed to some sort of normative idea of a partner even. Glenn literally says relating to his sort of idea of love extends to the people he knows and this idea of community, but also to people that he doesn't know. I think that's very intertwined with what it could mean to make art. It's not about having an agenda or being recognized as the author. So it's not about 
what I want to say, but more like this whole project is really a love letter to Glenn and his music and to his partnership with Elizabeth, but also the whole universe that they create together and how they sort of invite us into it. So much of your work is about making and telling stories with others. I guess so. That's true. Looking back, has something emerged that perhaps has become clearer in working with others to tell stories? This project coinciding with COVID has been very instructive about what's important in terms of making art right now, which is just to be really open and accepting of limitations. There were a lot of difficulties with the borders. I couldn't get any of my film crew into Canada. I had to quarantine for 17 days in Nova Scotia in order to meet Glenn. We really just got to spend two days, three days together. It was just a lot of waiting. There were times when I questioned, like, is this enough? Is this the right use of resources? I kept telling myself that I needed to trust the process. Glenn really also taught me that in just trying to, like, find synchronicity with him. I think I found what the work needed to be with very little effort, which is something I'm not used to. I think as artists, we're just generally trained to be like workaholics because that's just sort of the industry that we are all in. But I think um, it doesn't have to be like that. (laughs) That's so crazy to hear you spent two to three days together. And I spent 17 days in isolation with Tosh and we almost lost our minds, but it was also like somehow that felt like that went into the work too. What does liberation mean to you? I don't relate to that word. It sort of ties into this question about love and making art. It's like for me, liberation, I think it has like a misalignment with some idea of personal freedom. And for me, it has much more to do with letting go and letting things come and sort of being open to participating. So I guess that's what liberation is to me. The title anthem, I think in a similar way to liberation is like this big word that has a lot of aspirant qualities to it. I kind of got interested in the root of the word means actually like a spiritual call and response. Before there were nation state projects, the word anthem was more associated with community building. That's what I was thinking about with anthem and Glenn. That's beautiful. I think that's the time that we have. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.